grooming in my case looked like an abuser finding out my vulnerabilities. He knew I wanted to be famous. He knew I wanted to get out of the farm life that I was growing up in. So he played off that. Today, I sit down with Eliza Blue, a child sex trafficking survivor. Now she's advocating for the many children being exploited for profit online. Children are either being blackmailed, groomed, or extorted, sextorted to making this content. And it is probably by far the biggest threat right now when we're talking about the sexual exploitation of children. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Eliza Blue, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, you're a survivor of sex trafficking, yeah. to put it really bluntly. and. Maybe let, let's just start with your story, frankly, because frankly, a very important and powerful one. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, so to cut out a little bit of time, because it would take a long time for me to explain the entire story. Um, I was homeschooled. I thought that everyone was perfect and good, like the family that I came from. Uh, I met an abuser who was uh, a photographer uh, when I was 15 years old. I like to be very clear when I'm speaking about this and let folks know that I'm 41 years old now. Um, and at the time, there was no real social media or internet. This individual spent two years grooming me over the phone and uh, through actual letter mail. Um, nowadays, things work much more quickly through uh, the use of social media and modern technology. But at the time, uh, that wasn't available. But this individual grew me for two years. I graduated early because I was homeschooled and moved out to Los Angeles. He promised me that I would be a star. Uh, he told me I'd be a model and a rock star, and I believed him. Um, almost right away. I, so I moved to Los Angeles when I was a minor. And almost right away, I was sex trafficked. And um, it was just as horrible as I think anyone would think it, it would be. Um, unfortunately, uh, because that initial trauma was there, even though I was able to get out of that specific situation because I had a drug overdose. Um, so I went to the hospital and I was able to get out of that specific scary situation. Fortunately, because that trauma was there, I uh, ended up being trafficked again another time in my life. So um, it's been a pattern for me, unfortunately, abusive relationships. Um, I was also in domestic violence, uh, marriage as well, multiple sexual assaults, and of course the trafficking. Um, I'm so grateful to be free today. So grateful. And so we're, I want to talk about that journey because to me, that's the, that's the really powerful part, right? At least I only know, I only know a little bit of the story from our, actually from our mutual friend, Teresa Helm. Yes, um, and thank you so much for but, interviewing her. That was um, Teresa J. Helm, for anyone that's watching that doesn't know, is a survivor of Epstein and Maxwell. She's also a close personal friend of mine. And uh, you did a fabulous interview with her, and it just means a lot. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about this concept of grooming before we sure. continue, because that word is just thrown around right now. Like every, every everything's grooming, not everything, but but what does that really mean? Like, just spell it out for us. I'm sure it has a d definition, like an Oxford de definition. I don't know that definition. What I know is my experience and what it looked like for me in my life. Um, it looked like an abuser finding out my vulnerabilities and preying off of those vulnerabilities over a prolonged period of time. Um, grooming can take on many different forms. I would prefer that folks don't overuse the word and only use it when it's specifically about specifically grooming. Um, mainly because we've seen what has happened to words like racism, bigotry. Um, they've been used so many times. 
overused. And then when real racism and real, real bigotry comes about, I mean, in fact, this event was called racist and, and uh, bigoted, transphobic. I saw some uh, posts today, you know, the SPLC, sorry, I'm going off on a full tangent, but we have to be very mindful. Um, I take grooming, child sexual exploitation, and uh, human trafficking very seriously. So we cannot use these words lightly. We have to say them, the words have meaning. So I just want to say that. Um, but a grooming in my case looked like an abuser finding out my vulnerabilities. He knew I wanted to be famous. He knew I wanted to get out of the farm life that I was growing up in. He knew that I thought that being homeschooled was super lame and that I just wanted to get off the farm. So he played off that. And um, in, uh, in other ways, sometimes grooming can look like uh, a job promise that doesn't exist, especially for folks that immigrate, that immigrate uh, folks that immigrate here from other countries. There are promises of things that simply don't exist. So a grooming can take on many different forms. Oh, man, Ghislaine Maxwell was one of the worst. She was um, one of the most manipulative and deviant. Deviant. You know, and this is the thing, like, I think people don't understand. Like, it takes the form of, you know, someone just kind of becoming your friend, right? Yes. And they're just, but what they're really doing is they're kind of setting you up Correct. for later when they'll take it. They, they'll, they're earning you. Grooming is actually earning trust, which Correct. isn't deserved, right? Which is, is that very yeah. scary and sad that someone will knowingly manipulate on that level. They know what they're. They know what they're doing. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell. Hate to go back to it, but she was one of the worst. Uh, knew what she was doing. My former abuser knew what he was doing. He set out to groom a child so that he could make money off of selling my body. So um, in the United States, we do see a vast majority of trafficking survivors have a pre-existing relationship with their abuser, their trafficker, whether that be a family member, a boyfriend, and I'm using the word boyfriend like very loosely, um, or someone that, they, someone that they have a pre-existing relationship with. That's very interesting because, like, you know, I, I'm going to mention this because it just came to my mind. It's very different from that film from years ago, Taken. You remember that, right? Of course I where, remember. Where it's just, it. Yes, you know, it's basic, a thorn in my yeah. side. Okay, why is that a thorn in your side? Because, yeah. uh, unfortunately, what it did was set this um, unrealistic Hollywood version of what human trafficking looks like. In the United States, we only see, and I mean, I shouldn't say only because it's really diminishing and belittling almost to survivors of this crime. But as far as kidnapping goes, like real kidnapping where you don't have a pre-existing relationship, we see about 300 statistically over the last 10 years um, kidnapping victims a year. But human trafficking victims, we see much more than 300. I think that this preconceived notion that it's always kidnapping is very dangerous. What it does is it sets, and, it's, and I, I see the same thing sort of with um, human smuggling and human trafficking. Folks can't differentiate. I couldn't differentiate. When folks don't know what human trafficking looks like, they're less likely to identify as victims or survivors. We need survivors to be able to self-identify. So when they only think it's chains, duct tape on the mouth, you know, ropes on the wrist, um, when they think you have to be transported in the back of a semi-truck, they're less likely to self-identify and step forward for healing and hope that they deserve. So it, I don't know if you feel comfortable about this, but like in this situation that you were in, sure. you know, you were invited out to be a star and then you land in Los Angeles and then suddenly the situation changes. 
right? And so what, like, how did that look like? Uh, so I wasn't, I don't come from a home that had substance abuse or alcohol really around, but I wanted to be cool. I was in LA, I was a minor, um, and I was offered a beer. That's how it started. I was offered a beer and I just wanted to be cool. Uh, and I wanted to seem like it was normal for me and like I could hang. I drank the beer, then after the beer, the drugs were introduced. And um, I also don't come from a household that does narcotics or I hadn't really been around it really at all. And so I just did a little bit of drugs and then the very inappropriate sexual um, behavior began. Especially considering the fact that I was a minor. Um, and I like to remind folks of that when I tell my story. Like, at no point would this have been acceptable, um, period. And I was scared. And I didn't want to call the cops because I thought it was my fault. I thought I'd go to prison or jail because uh, I thought that I was doing illegal activities, which I was. And I also, uh, so the year that I was trafficked originally, was the first year that the first law in the United States was written against human trafficking. We did not have the language to put to these issues that we do now. Thank God things have changed. I Thank God things have changed. We've hit a major hockey stick moment. I could sit here and talk to you about these issues. At the time, we didn't have the language. Yeah. Uh, you would have been thought of as a minor prostitute, a drug addict, and uh, something else. Now we can identify that this is a crime and that individuals like myself need help you know it's bad it was really bad if you listen to my story and then if you listen to Teresa J Helms story folks like to think that the global elite like Epstein is um, rare but actually my story and Teresa J Helms story mirror each other quite quite a lot a lot of the Epstein survivors statistically what we see here in the United States mirror a lot of what the survivors of R. Kelly went through, the survivors of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and, and Epstein, myself. And so the data speaks to that. So when folks are looking at that case, I want them to not just think of the elite factor. I want them to think of how could we have prevented this crime from happening in the first place? You know? This is, you know, uh, I, I want to sort of go into this. I, yeah. I feel like I can somehow, but it's a very strange realm because you're, it's about trust, really, right? This whole that you, someone's creating a relationship with you based on trust. If you're gonna teach someone to be vigilant of possible sex trafficking, someone that's grooming you, it's also kind of like teaching them to not tr to be careful to trust people, right, or something like this. And so, and I, I, I this just struck me because I'm I'm actually so deeply concerned by the fact that in our society, in this atomized society that we are today, that actually people don't trust each other, right? So, this strikes me as like I a think, terrible I conundrum. I think it's more of a lesson, not, not of trust, because you also need to let folks know that if something bad does happen, they can trust you to come forward and be honest. So there is a, a layer of trust there that needs to be had. I think it's more of a lesson of if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. And um, and there are evil individuals in the world. One thing that helped me process my trauma, believe it or not, was learning about history. 
in some of the other things that are going on in the world. North Korea, the Chinese Uyghurs genocide, the gulags, everything. It made me really, uh, it didn't, I'm not happy that those things happen. I'm not happy that they're happening, but it does help me process, okay, there's evil out here. So I think if there is one thing I could go back and do, because I think about this all the time, if there's one thing that I think I would go back and do in my past would be to learn about evil. Evil exists, evil exists. And I think if, if parents teach children that evil's out there, but also if something bad does happen, they can come to their family members or whomever and be you know, transparent about what's going on. And if the family member is the abuser, um, they need to also have uh, safe adults in their life. Do you plan to have children? I would love to, but I'm 41. I, I'd have to start You're like 41. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have children. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think that I would love to adopt as well. We'll see what happens. Well, I need a husband first. Here, here's the reason. I need a husband first. Here's the first. reason I'm asking, okay? Yes. Because I'm wondering. Like, this how, took a turn. How would you, how would you talk to sure. your children to tell them about just about these realities, right? There are so many educational tools now. Um, there are so many educational tools that start from a very young age, like cartoons for young children about safety, internet safety. Um, we have to be very proactive with children uh, these days. And I don't think, you don't want uh, your child to have a sextortion case or um, a situation where they're, uh, <laughs> you would be, I mean, some of the stuff that we see these days is predominantly, uh, self-generated content produced by the child and then Used. spread online. Yeah. Correct. I mean, this is like very common. The FBI is screaming about it. I'm screaming about it. Um, and there's many, I mean, basically every government, every nobody's listening. Everybody's like, yo, we have a problem. So I, I just want to kind of yeah. spell out what this is. Let me see if I've sure. got this right, right? It's basically kids are making sexualized photos or videos for each other or Correct. something, and someone grabs that or fools them into creating it and then Correct. uses it as leverage yes. to get them to do what Blackmailed, they want. Blackmailed, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And that, it's called sex This is so horrific. It's, it's very horrific, but it's very real. So we need to have these honest conversations and, like, stop. So this is growing. This is a growing I, it's phenomenon. It's beyond growing. The numbers and the data about self-generated content just off of Facebook alone are mind-blowing in the millions a month. So children are either being blackmailed, groomed, we go back to that word groomed, or extorted, sextorted to making this content. And it is probably by far uh, the biggest threat right now when we're talking about the sexual exploitation of children in, the, in the United States. You're saying that this specific phenomenon is the, mo is the biggest problem for the sec towards the sexual exploitation of children. It is, right. I would say it's number one. Fascinating, what are, what are the other ones? Of sexual exploitation yeah, or all yeah. exploitation of children? Uh, let's try. Let's start with. I mean, <laughs> it's a broad. It's terrible. It's, a, it's terrible yeah. that that we you could even ask that question, Correct. right? But yeah. yeah. But let's do both. Yeah. So uh, the sexual exploitation of children right now, um, a lot of things we have, of course, familial, familial um, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, molestation. Um, we have parents that are leaving their children with individuals whom they don't know the full background who end up exploiting their children. We have child sexual abuse material, which is, um, I, I try not to sound hyperbolic when I'm speaking about this because I don't want to 
make it so that folks don't pay attention. It is one of the biggest problems on the internet period of all time. Uh, it used to be before that pedophiles would just exchange uh, Polaroids in back alleys. Um, nowadays, there is an entire market um, for this material and it's posted on the main feed of our regular social media platforms. I'll give you a for instance. Um, I wrote a story for The Blaze about a pedophile, a child abuser, that had 290,000 Twitter followers, 290,000 Twitter followers, and posted child sexual abuse material on the main feed for four years on Twitter. He would lure children, and he had a business that was running on the main feed of Twitter for four years. And then there's a case of John Doe number one and John Doe number two off of Twitter. Uh, they're both minor survivors suing Twitter. Um, their child sexual abuse material video was watched uh, over 160,000 times with over 2,000 retweets. They're suing, they're suing Twitter. So this is not like a dark web type of thing. Um, Isn't even like watching that stuff illegal? Like, uh, So viewing child sexual abuse material, uh, I don't think that, <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't think about it like that. Um, some, I, so I have, because of my work, stumbled on child sexual abuse material that I then report to the FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But um, I don't know if actually, it, maybe if you seek it out, I'd have to look the law. I'm just stunned that people re, would reach, like anyone would retweet this or like this. What the thing we that strikes me is so bizarre. Sick. I, wow! Like, but, I mean, like the people are not. They have no problem saying, "Yeah, I watched this," and why don't you watch it too? What the hell is that? Um, it's a sick society, but uh, let's look at the silver lining because I try to find one. Um, the silver lining is that we can have these conversations. The silver lining is that every time there's a big case like this, more survivors feel like they can step forward. They know they're not alone. Um, and, it, and we are urging these platforms and parents to talk to their kids and, um, you know, the platforms to maybe make things a little bit better and prioritize reports. There is some silver lining. We need to have this conversation. We're just having it too late, so we're trying to play catch up. The abusers had a head start, but they won't win in the end. I, just, I want to kind of touch on these, like, mainstream social media platforms. Sure. I mean, if there's anything that's an easy removal should be right it's sure. that right like what else could there be that's an easy <laughs> removal right yeah this is one of my main beefs um so the smaller um the smaller platforms that are more free speech like minds.com locals can remove the child sexual exploitation child sexual abuse material very quickly and very easily um when you look at the reports uh, like as far as like terrorism or terroristic threats you're looking at a few thousand a month as opposed to child sexual abuse material so i, I like to pick on twitter specifically because um they're like my arch nemesis but i also love them but i hate them um i love the platform but i i think they're They've had some egregious things happen. Um, so when you look at the month of May, uh, I believe they removed 46,000 child sexual exploitation or non-consensual uh, images, videos, things like that, as opposed to terrorism globally, which they removed 2,000. So uh, the child sexual abuse material, child sexual exploitation material, non-consensual videos and imagery is off the chain. Um, why on earth platforms are not prioritizing the removal of this content is uh, beyond me. They have no problem removing words that they don't like, speech that they don't like, thoughts that they don't like. Um, I'm sure that the that your own 
publication has been censored at some point, of course. Why wouldn't they? Because it doesn't fit their narrative. But to remove the very egregious human rights violation that's being monetized and viewed and spread around. And once that child sexual abuse material is online, it's almost impossible to get it off. Almost impossible. These survivors' lives are ruined. Why these platforms are not prioritizing it, I don't know. But we have to be very mindful when we're having this conversation because uh, what Facebook did is they actually, it's a long story, but to remove videos of beheading and um, terrorism and child sexual abuse material, they've actually been using individuals in Kenya and India and paying them $2.50 an hour to remove child sexual abuse material off Facebook. So we have to be very mindful that we don't push platforms to um, create more trafficking in a desperate need to remove trafficking from the platforms. Right, because you're basically saying these people are being exploited to remove Correct. exploited yeah, material. Yeah, so Facebook, Facebook Meta is being sued by a survivor of human trafficking in Kenya um, who was removing child sexual abuse material for $2.50 an hour um, for many hours a day. So, a survivor, so they created a survivor of human trafficking to remove the human trafficking off the platform. So we have to be very mindful. We're doing this a very like human-centered approach. Sorry, I'm like this is like no. my whole tangent. No, that, this is this is <laughs> incredibly interesting, is right? It? I mean, it's interesting. It was in time, by the way, but, if you want to look up but that also, story. But also, like, I mean, it is the issue of our times because you're right. The moment that something like this goes up, I'm sure there's all these sick people that are pulling it down and to keep it for forever so that you know because they know that it might get removed or something right I can just imagine that right there are some bright spots so let's I can we could talk a little bit about the technology so um, most of the platforms use Microsoft photo DNA Microsoft photo DNA was designed in 2008 or 2009 um, and Essentially what it does is once that image or video is in the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children database, it's hashed. And then if it goes up on a, a platform like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, it, you know, um, it will trip off the artificial intelligence. Um, so there's, there are some bright spots. I'm, I'm really looking forward to what technology and innovation can do around these issues. I just need people to care. But more importantly, I need parents to talk to their ki kids. And you, I mean, you've, you've had some personal successes in this, in this battle. So maybe tell me a little bit about those. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think every day is a success. I think the fact that I'm here speaking at Freedom Fest is, is a success. I mean, survived human trafficking and now I'm here to live to tell the story. That's a pretty big success. So that's a number one, like best thing. Um, as far as, gosh, I get, I, I try to have fun with my activism and advocacy, but, um, I think probably one of my biggest wins has been like different uh, lawsuits putting law legal pressure on some of the platforms and speaking up on behalf of the survivors that cannot speak for themselves because they're minors. Um, but getting Twitter to add a special report button for non-consensual and exploitative child sexual abuse material, um, that was, <laughs> you would think that that ask wouldn't have been much. It took me a year to get an extra button and I didn't even fully get what I wanted. But yes, I, I, I will push and push and push. I am relentless. But you think it, it makes a difference nonetheless though, right? Um, yeah. So what I'm trying to do is encourage platforms to be um, innovative. I don't mind if the government regulates it, but what I don't want is for the government to 
uh, break digital privacy rights or have uh, use human trafficking, child sexual exploitation material as an excuse to get a backdoor into our privacy, in which case I feel like then you're making all citizens that are um, innocent citizens slaves to the state. Yeah, well, so this is, you're, you're touching on exactly <laughs> what I wanted to get into. So no, because this is exactly the issue. I mean, it's also the issue in a different, I don't know if a scale is the right term, but you know, for example, you want to teach kids to be safe, to play it safe, to watch out, to be, to know the signs, yeah. right? On the other hand, we live in a society where we're obsessed with safety. If we continue, like, like the COVID pandemic, right, is the is the sort of textbook example of that. It's not really a good way to live, right? So how do you find the right the right way through that? That's a big question. I don't think anyone has the answer for that. Similar to here, right? Of course, absolutely. We're in this. We're on this kind of precipice of all all privacy disappearing, right? You have to be very, on, very, very careful. On the other yeah. hand, this is extremely serious, and these we we have to protect our children, right? No, it is, yeah. but you don't. Um, so I'm kind of bullish on digital privacy rights as well. I just take it very seriously because I understand that in this the hands of the state or tech companies, uh, they will use it to gain power and control over everyone. And what I don't want to do is um, put the safety of all innocent citizens aside to protect some survivors that have been trafficked online. I um, feel very deeply about survivors and I understand sometimes uh, it's a natural instinct to want to make these broad sweeping legislations that will give folks, you know, give tech companies or governments access to everyone's, gosh, the EU is pushing through some stuff right now that's scary. It's terrifying. I mean, and I don't think that the government has earned our trust, any government, and we have to proceed like that. So that's why I'm always encouraging innovation and prioritizing reports and, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I just want anything besides the government solution to trafficking. As far as safety goes, um, you know, humans aren't supposed to be in a security bubble. We're supposed to touch germs. We're supposed to get messy sometimes, our heartbroken and other struggles and strife. It's not that I don't want, I do want parents to be transparent with children about the dangers, but also you cannot be like a total hover parent, but what you can do is let them know that if and when they hit the weeds, like get in the weeds and their life starts going horribly, they have somewhere to go. So it's a two-part deal. You let them know what the dangers are out there, but also if you get stuck, come home. You know, I think you said something incredibly profound. It just, just simply the idea that evil really does exist is very important. And a lot of kids aren't taught that today. Right? I know. Yeah. I'm still trying to process yeah. that myself. I mean, because that's not how my brain works naturally. My brain doesn't work how the government works or how the, uh, an abuser works or how um, you know, an evil dictator works. I, so it's really difficult, I think. People, people say to me all the time, how can anyone be an abuser? How can anyone be an abuser? I'm like, I don't know, it's not my path, but I think we need to recognize that this is a thing that's happening. So like, I'm not gonna sit here and try to figure out how did Stalin become Stalin? Like, I'm just gonna be like, okay, that's a thing that happened and it could happen again. So what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen again? So you got trafficked, you OD'd, you got out. 
then you got someone else or the same person, I don't know, you got, you got in with them again, and then somehow you got out. How did that happen? It was a different, it was a different person the okay. second time. Um, that story's a little more nuanced, um, but so how I got out, uh, it took, it was really hard. It was really hard because I had a deep Stockholm Syndrome trauma bonds with my former abusers. I thought I was in love with them. Uh, I just really thought I was freaking in love. I was watching YouTube one night and I saw a survivor on YouTube tell her story. This was a little bit before, I know it's funny, right? That YouTube would have that much of an impact or something like so random or, so it's, it almost seems like flippant or trivial to like turn on a YouTube video, but in my case, it saved my freaking life. I turned it on, I saw Annie. Um, Annie has a safe house here in Las Vegas uh, called Destiny's House. And she was beautiful aesthetically. And that was the language that spoke to me at that time. Her hair was beautiful. Her makeup was beautiful. And she was, I think it might have been like a CNN clip or something like that. But she was walking the strip and she was telling her story. And I, I understood for the first time like kind of what was happening to me. And I reached out for help and support uh, from a local organization. Um, I was given a survivor advocate very quickly. Um, they helped me move. I went to a safe house. Unfortunately, my trauma bonds and my Stockholm syndrome with my former abuser was so um, so deep and so thick that I, a two-year program at the, survive, at the Survivor Safe House only lasted for three months. And then I went back to him. But eventually, I just left. Because what happened there, and this is crucial, what happened there was seeds of hope were planted at that, um, at that safe house. Seeds of hope, even though I wasn't ready to receive the message, my brain was a little broken. Um, there was seeds of hope that, was, that were planted there. So I started to feel like I had value and worth and like I was worth something more, yeah. So, the, you know, it's very interesting because there's, it's a, the, the grooming, I mean, I, I, sorry to make it sound so clinical, but this is what I'm hearing from you right now, right? This <laughs> grooming is this process and they kind of build this trust, build this trust and create these bonds. And you're in this situation where you're almost ready to do crazy things because you think you have this connection with this person. Well, and I wasn't, you feel, I wasn't right. like human, really. I talked to Dr. Drew a lot. Do you know Dr. Drew? <laughs> He's such a classic, right? He always tells me, Eliza, you were in a cult of two. So right. I was basically a cult member right. is essentially my brain was not here. Yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful I snapped out of it. Yeah. So I, I don't think I'd be here anymore. I was not headed. I was not headed down a good path. But then but the, the other side of it was also those seeds you're saying like it was a, it was a process. You yeah. needed to know that it wasn't you weren't ready to break that at the right at the beginning. No. Or it wasn't strong enough, but you knew there was a way. Right. And it was a process of building that trust as well. Yeah. This other place. I was fighting it. I was really fighting it. It's almost like I didn't want to be free. And so I try not to judge people that have fallen for propaganda or other types of things because I fell for it, too. It was just different. So this is again, you're reading my mind here. OK, <laughs> 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 because I want this, it, it's such a it's such a profound question, right? Yeah. We see people in our society more broadly today, believing all sorts of things that are, you know, just if you step back and look, you think to yourself, that is really crazy. Like, how can you believe that? 
I, I'm also, I'm, I'm of the more empathetic sort. I don't immediately judge, oh, you, that person's stupid or anything like that. But, and then, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've read this book yet, The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Desmet. If you haven't, I, I, I recommend it. Okay. It's one of the most important books I've read in a long time. But he kind of provides a model for how this can happen, how people can, can be, get into this situation. And it's hard just like what you're describing, this is what reminded me of this, yeah. right? It's hard to get out, even if, you, if, you've, if you've decided that you're running with a certain, let's call it a narrative, sure. right? Then it's hard to break that, actually. You need some, something, it's almost like a shock to the system needs to happen to, to break that. Sometimes for some folks, it's a shock to the system. For other folks, it's slow, plant seeds of hope uh, and truth. Because the truth shines. When... When the truth, the truth is so powerful that when the sunlight hits it, it sparkles. So I just want everybody to be free. That's it. You know, free from abuse, free from um, whatever's really holding them back. And uh, whatever that is, if it's mentally, because a lot of folks are just trapped, trapped themselves. You know, they're trapped themselves too. Um, and of course, I've been there a couple times. But I just want folks to be free. And I think the best way to do that is to plant seeds of hope and to tell the truth. As we finish up, I want to just talk a little bit about what is it that will give you a hint that someone you know is experiencing this? Because sometimes it's very well hidden from what I understand, right? How can you kind of get a hint that someone might need help? Yeah, everyone asks me how to spot a victim survivor of human trafficking. And I always flip the question, how could a victim survivor of human trafficking spot you? Are you a safe person? Do you smile? Are you non-judgmental? Could they disclose abuse? And if and when they did, would you know what to do once they did? When we're prepared uh, to handle those conversations and when we're um, just having open and honest dialogue, um, being a loving person, a smiling person, I mean, it's crazy. Like, even here at Freedom Fest, You'd be surprised at things that folks will disclose when you just are a friendly, safe person. So I don't want to run around looking for victims all the time. I want to know how can victims spot me? So you want to be the person that, that people will trust to talk to. Yeah. Right. That's what I would say. Um, because a survivor or victim and an abuser can look like anything. It could be anyone. Um, any age, any gender, any race, any ethnicity, any religious background. It's so diverse that we can't go around chasing, you know, oh, I'm looking for someone that's not making eye contact. Okay, well, maybe that, that's a, maybe that person isn't in traffic. Maybe they're just shy, you know, or like looking for a brand or something like that. It's like, no, just be an open, cool person. And then if somebody's in need and needs support, they know they could come talk to you. And so, you know, what is what is it that let's say someone does disclose to you i have this problem but you know the reality is that they may not be ready like you weren't to leave mm -hmm. right um because of these bonds that you were describing what what can they do that's a great question nobody's ever asked me that so the number one thing i always say is uh thank you for trusting me enough to tell me um because that means a lot so thank you so much for being honest um, I believe you. Are you, this is, this is my full, I, I hate to sound like I'm doing a script, but it's, it is a script because I get sh 
shattered and frazzled as well. So I'm kind of grateful that I have a script because it gives me something to go to. Thank you for, t for disclosing that with me. I, I believe you. Um, are you at risk of harming yourself or are you in physical danger? Because if so, I just want to make sure you stay safe just today. Oftentimes, when survivors first disclose abuse, um, there's something really uh, heavy going on. It's not like it's just going to, you know, it comes out sometimes just randomly, but um, generally they, by the time they're at a point where they're disclosing abuse, it's like kind of go time to as far as like needing support services. Um, so depending on the situation, I make sure that they aren't at risk of self-harm or suicide or physical danger. And then we go from there. And um, the human trafficking hotline works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and they serve survivors of past or recent trauma. And they will also take tips as well. Um, if, if it's difficult to get through there. Um, but, but, it, but it works. That's, that's important because a lot of times, you know, people say, what do you mean, call a number? What is that going to do, seems right? Corny. Yeah. It seems corny, but um, there's something freeing about calling someone and you don't have to tell them your name. They're not going to judge you. And they can help assess your needs and find you local resources for free. Um, it seems corny. It seems lame. Um, for instance, because I'm a survivor, if the if this you know whole thing became too much for me, or after my speech tomorrow, if I got too triggered and I was going to a dark place, I would call the hotline. I have other folks I can call. I have safe people that I can call and talk to. Um, I would actually, I would probably, I could, I would feel comfortable reaching out to you. You know what I'm saying? Like if I really needed someone to talk to, but. If I felt like uh, this is like a survivor issue, I would feel still comfortable calling the hotline. It seems corny, but it works. Okay, so we're as as we're finishing up. I just realized, you know, we we haven't talked any of the statistics. Yeah. Right. I actually think I'm one of these people who thinks it is actually important <laughs> to state yeah. them because it's much bigger than most people realize. Sure. So just you know, very briefly, what is the reality of this in America right now? So the numbers are difficult to get. Let's start off by saying that. Um, they're difficult to get because it's hard for survivors to step forward and disclose. I'm thinking about a $150 billion industry, 43 million globally. In the United States, I have no clue. But I will tell folks this. Um, it, so it, when I speak, I, I speak a lot about child sexual abuse material in the digital space. So that's, those numbers are a little easier to get just because, because the platforms have to report. So those are like a little bit more concrete. Um, the Human Trafficking Institute does um, great data collection. Every year um, there's been a lot of lawsuits, but the number one way I think that folks will realize that it's happening in their hometown, just Google human trafficking in, the, in your hometown or the closest city and find out what stories pop up. I Google, you know, uh, child sexual abuse material, folks that have been caught locally, you will see it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Like the numbers are insane, but I think that it does something when you can see that it's happening in your home. There was just a man that was sentenced a few days ago for th uh, 30 years for uh, sextortion of children in my hometown. He works in the same city that I work in. So, and I mean, well, I'm calling it a city loosely, same town. So, I mean, it's happening all the time. I'm sure Vegas probably has uh, quite a few. You have this amazing joie de vivre, you know, your, this energy, <laughs> this joy. Um, that you that that yeah you know we've spent a bit of time together you you go around and spread <laughs> it you know it, it it's it's a wonderful thing 
Um, so what is... You're, what giving is me, you're making me blush. <laughs> what is the... I, I guess, what is the hope here? What is the, what is the silver lining? What is the, the, the good future that you see happening? Because I know you do. Right. Oh, I'm very, yeah, I'm like, I'm very hopeful. Um, I see so many beautiful things happening. Um, number one, the fact that we're even having these conversations. This crime was swept under the rug for so long. And finally, as a society, and I, I'm not grateful for, for what happened to the Epstein survivors, but I'm so grateful that they came forward, stepped forward, and were relentlessly pursuing justice and still are. Um, because it was a hockey stick moment. This crime was swept under the rug. And I think enough survivors stepped forward. And so many people like were like, you know what, you know, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is a real thing that's happening, and we're going to start paying attention. Folks are thirsty to hear about this and thirsty to talk about it, and they're thirsty also for survivors to receive justice. And the more survivors that step forward, then the m more survivors that step forward. So when you see survivors like the Epstein survivors, that has a butterfly effect that floats through the entire world then other survivors know that they can step forward and be believed which is so beautiful i'm so uh excited and grateful um i think that generally speaking there's an energy out there where people really aren't rocking with this pedophile nonsense and people are done so i think that i'm just excited that folks are wanting to have these conversations I'm just so grateful. Um, as far as uh, me personally, um, I'm excited that trust in the abusive government and their lackeys with the corporate press is at an all-time low. There's no trust in the United States government. There's no trust in the corporate media that's uh, been uh, gaslighting and spewing this propaganda for so long. And I couldn't be more happy because I don't trust the government either. And I think it's time that folks um, start focusing on the real abuser, which is the United States government. That's just how I feel. But I, that's why I'm speaking at Freedom Fest. On a super personal note, I'm just, I'm just so grateful to be alive. I really am. I'm like, there's so many times every day I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm alive. This is like the best. I'm like, I'm just going to live. Um, I never thought anybody would ever believe me. And I never thought anybody would ever take anything that I said seriously. And now I get to write news articles. Um, which is like a dream come true. I get to meet my heroes, and we meet on an even playing field, and I am their equal, and they see me as such, and it's, it's an honor. Well, Eliza Blue, it's such a pleasure <laughs> to have so, you on. <laughs> I'm so sorry I got so emotional. It's, it's wonderful to have you on. Thank, thank you. you. And I appreciate you, and you're an awesome person, and I really appreciate everything that you've done, and thank you for covering this, and thank you to Epoch Times for um, talking about these issues as well. Thank you all for joining Eliza Blue and me here at Freedom Fest on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.